welcome to the Better World Leaders podcast. Here, we invite you to explore conversations with people who are co-creating, regenerating, reimagining, and re-enlivening ways of knowing, doing, and being across our diverse array of areas of great change and profound transformation. One thing unites them all. They are all Better World Leaders. Welcome to the Better World Leaders podcast and to our first guest co-creating conversation of season six. In all of my experience, being someone who seeks to learn, seeks to develop in order to be in service of the great transformation that is underway, there is one person who I would say has had the most profound affect on me. And that is the person with whom this conversation is co-created. Welcome to the conversation with Carol Sanford. Carol Sanford, welcome to the Better World Leaders podcast. Tim, thank you so much for the invitation. It is absolutely splendid to be here in this you know, virtual space with you. I feel a really strong warmth in my heart just being here with you today. So I'm looking forward to wherever this conversation takes us. Me too. I, uh, you are one of my special people, so I'm really glad to be here with you. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try and contain myself uh, in, in receipt of, uh, of that enormous compliment. Um, we're here today to, ex- I'm going to say, explore indirect work. And I think in, in the first instance, uh, as a way of, of sort of offering those that are listening that will have heard me mention you on a number of occasions and may as yet not be familiar with your work, let's just talk initially about why indirect work is needed. All right. I've written six books, as you know, and I'm uh, halfway through number seven now, hopefully out early next year. Uh, Number six is called Indirect Work. And what people say to me, and I'm glad because I think it was my intention, is it gives the underpinnings or the foundation or where the world I was coming from on the first five. because I do have a pretty, what uh, my grandfather called a positive contrarian view on things. And what that means is he always felt like uh, I saw something other people didn't see. And so did I. And thank goodness I had him or I wouldn't be able to make sense of my life. And the title of this book explains a bit about an answer to your question. There's a great story. I I was at UC Berkeley, a big university in the States, uh, and I got to sit in a classroom with a series of people, one who'd been connected to Einstein. Uh, His name was Edward Teller, and he was one of the creators of the uh, atom bomb. So a very interesting fellow to be in the room with, and I took physics one-on-one. Uh, he had studied with Einstein at Princeton when he was there. And Einstein had, had this saying ongoingly that uh, we had to not use the paradigm we created, the mess we've made, 
as the way to try and create a better future. Because if we couldn't see how we created this mess, we would do it again. And Teller and a series of the students asked um, uh, Einstein what he meant by that, because he said it's, um, it's published like 27 times, and he apparently said it a lot more. And here's the story he gave, and it will explain a lot about where I'm coming from. Einstein said, we normally, in our modern life, and this was, of course, before the 1950s, it was the 40s uh, and 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, we were very anchored in mechanical science, Newtonian science, a world of things. And Einstein, as a way to explain it, said, is we're anchored in a billiard ball mindset. And I think he meant pool, because if you've ever played either of those, they have pockets. Well, pool is anyway. I've never played billiards. Pool has pockets. And he said the way we think of it is we think about positioning uh, what we want to have happen in the world. And so we defined what the pockets were, figured out who was on the table as a cue ball, and that we were the cue stick to hit the balls into the pocket we chose. He said that's a problem because in quantum physics, we know that you can't do that. It's more like a matrix when a baby is conceived and it has its own choices and its own direction, its own timing when it will be born. And it draws from the matrix that it's in. And so the only thing we can really do is create a healthy matrix uh, and that can be in psychology for both parents in the process it can be in food and liquids for the carrier of that matrix and baby and Einstein said if we can't switch and work indirectly on the matrix and quit trying to work on the baby as though it's a billiard ball table, we will never have the right way to think about the new future we're creating. So that's a bit of a long story, but why we need this book now is we are a billiard ball players, pool players with the life, with the world. We decide what our mission will be for a life shed. And I made up the word life shed because watershed is a billiard ball idea. Uh, it's our water coming down, our air, if it's an airshed. And if we can't get to the idea we're working on a matrix and we can only do it indirectly, we're in trouble. So I wrote a book to help people understand, particularly change agents, leaders, well-intended people who are going after everything the same way we got into the mess we're in directly you know we got here because people extracted things out of uh, the living system because they thought they knew better and then the humanists came along and decided uh they would do good and it was their good and it was directly done so why i wrote this book is to disrupt the attachment we have to the method the pool metaphor method we got here and invite people to learn to work indirectly. And I think I gave some pretty good stories and examples because this isn't a hypothetical. It's the way I've lived my life for 60 years in the work world. I'll be 80 years old in a couple of weeks. So that's why I wrote it. Oh, there's so much joy alive for me right now in, in hearing, you know, that 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 story and 
I, I can you know speak to my own lived experience in exactly you know sort of the the challenges that you've described you know I, I am one of those well-intentioned people who has yeah. in for many years in many different ways tried to push and impact and make you know I mean I'm using these words Keep yeah, intentionally. <laughs> yeah, me, me, maybe sometimes as the stick, maybe sometimes as the you know sort of cue ball in service and kind of choosing maybe which stick to sort of prostrate myself in front of. Right. Um, <laughs> but al- but also I've yeah, had direct experience, at, you know, which I kind of refer to as my sort of you know waking up to my own white saviorness, you know, in yeah. parts of the world where I'm trying to apply my own context and you know educate and you know, uplift people, you know, from my context. And they've pushed back really strongly and said, well, that won't work here. And, you know, come and understand our context. And sometimes these have been indigenous people. Sometimes they've been native to place. Um, But looking back retrospectively, there were many offers of insights into the kind of way of being that you're describing um, that I wasn't able to receive. And then with your work, you know, when I first encountered your work shortly after you published The Regenerative Business, there was a part of me that really deeply understood that there was something in here that that I needed. And there was a whole other part of me that just didn't know what to do with it and couldn't access it. And that was because I was trying to access a different way of being through the same lens that I'd been using the whole time. And your work here now is, as you've said yourself, you know, in indirect work is a key to, you know, sort of the rest of your work almost. And so I'm now working my way back through your, your other work, you know, with the key in hand and I'm receiving the work very, very differently now with this. And obviously, you know, we've had a lot of time together in other spaces as well. So yeah, it's a good place to be. I'm delighted to hear that. I think that I've never suggested that to people, but as I listen to you, it strikes me as a very ingenious idea. You will see, and I know with the people I studied with, I've gone back and looked at uh, work, books I've read, if they're long dead, uh, notes I'd made. uh, And what happens for me is I think, how did I miss that? I mean, that wasn't here last time. It's often what I say out loud, which, of course, it was. And going back, I hadn't paid much attention to what I had gotten from Thomas Kuhn in decades. Although when I he was a visiting scholar at Berkeley at the same time when I was there, and I got to sit in a lecture hall. Uh, I audited his class. I wasn't qualified to take it because uh, I went in the program is teaching him, but I got his permission and I sat in. And then we did something at Berkeley, which I think is amazing. Many professors would go with us at night over to something called the Rat Skeller, which was uh, for anybody who knows Berkeley, it's on Telegraph Avenue. You go down some stairs and to a little basement. And it was a kind of cafe where you had everything from uh, spoken word poets, right? Allen Ginsberg and uh, even Timothy Leary and people who were way out of my world at that time. And we got to talk to Thomas Kuhn because he just released his book about paradigm shifts, you know, the structure of the scientific revolution. So 
I created a whole bunch of what I do now off of that two years of engaging there. And then I did nothing with it for five, six years. And then both of my children got a little bit older. And I went back and read the structured scientific revolution. And I realized first, I don't think he would agree with everything that was in there anymore. And that was interesting to see. And the same is true of my books. If you go back and look, he'll say, I've heard Carol say something different than that. And people have to ask me, why did I change it? And I said, well, I learned something. You know, I can see something different. So I love the idea of your journey, which we're going to chat about, I think, a bit, being a re-examining, I would call it. It's not, if you reread it, you're dead in the water, right? Because you will tend to have the same mind. But in the indirect work, I created a process for reading the book, not a usual one of where you go underline and make notes and think you got smart because of something I said. I said, don't trust me. Don't use my ideas as gospel. Don't assume I'm an expert. And I say that to all my students as well. So re-examining things we thought we knew earlier, I think is what I'm now calling a long thought process where you have an idea you work on maybe a whole lifetime. And I'm writing a lot about this in book number seven. Uh, how if you have something, and I designed work systems, so that's happened in companies where people build on a question, a profound question, not a simple one, but when you have to keep asking, keep talking to people and keep rethinking and particularly let go of your attachments about your certainty from the previous thought you had. And I, I here's a, a thing that I would suggest to you if you go do this re-examining. Really decide what in there is worth thinking about for a long time, not just now rereading the book, but this long thought. And that process means we have to examine and let go and say, what what are my attachments now? What am I sure of? What have I got now? And let go of that and keep coming back to it. And by the time you're my age, you'll have gone way past the big question I was working on, because you're starting younger. I am younger, yes. I don't feel it all of the time, but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, I'll be a bit humorous here. No, I think, so there's 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 something very, very different about the experience of being with what you've created in indirect work. Right, like I, I frame it that way because it's 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 not reading a book, right? Like that, that certainly that wasn't my experience, right? Like the 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 intentionality that you set out, the provocation, which you know, I found to be less confronting than some of the provocations you've <laughs> provided in other places, um, yeah. But but a, but a really profound one, right? Like to actually experience being with the ideas and the frameworks and the examples that you provide and trusting yourself and really kind of sensing and paying attention to what your experience is as you're receiving the work and then now come back to it and, you know, is the experience different? And, it, yeah, so it's much more, of course, alive and, yeah 
or has more organic elements. It's a non-linear journey, even though it starts here and it kind of goes to here, but you're very much moving through it. So can we explore a little bit what we're talking about here for, for yeah, those who haven't read the book? It all seems very abstract right, right exactly. now. What are these two right. talking about? Okay. All right. So uh, I use a framework in there that I say the goal of it really is to find a new way, a way. Like if you studied Zen Buddhism, you get a path away. If you study uh, electrical engineering, there's a path, a course. Uh, and I offer in the book kind of a, um, not a template, but a, a master framework for how you work indirectly. So think about if you have children, and you have a few, right, a couple, and uh, most of your listeners probably do, uh, or, or were one at least, so they can relate to it. So uh, I said there are three things you have to work on that are the matrix, that are the womb, so to speak. One of those is the capability. Now think about with your children, because we uh, we want to be good parents. We want our children to be good citizens, good human beings. And so we spend a lot of time doing direct intervention. Say thank you. What do you say to somebody who gives you that? Don't talk back. Uh, uh, how are you doing in your math? You know, you, we constantly work on the which pocket we want to get them in on the pool table. And what I suggest, and out of time, I mean, not in the same time, because we also, the minute they're doing some, we try and correct them. Course correct right now. We we call that a teaching moment, which is a really dumb idea. Because uh, when you've destabilized a child, and then you try and tell them what you want, first their emotions are running crazy. And you know what it's like when yours do or mine do. We can't listen, but if what you're doing is building capabilities, so with businesses and with schools for children, uh, I talk a lot about ritual development, not lesson plans, but where you engage uh, in evaluating process, like growing a garden and providing that food to a senior citizen center nearby and maybe even selling it, receiving some income and figure out how to deal with it. My grandson was in a school like that. He's 23 years old now. So, But the capability of building that happened with the value-adding process teaches them all those lessons that you just said. And if you work with principals in that setting and have them reflect on the principals and have that happen regularly, like with my kids, we had Sunday evening reflection. And it was, if you read my fifth book, The Regenerative Life, I talk a lot about how I raised my kids based on my Mohawk grandfather's teaching. But the key was I was working on building capability, the matrix, that they could use to create things. And then all of my job was to help ask questions to get them reflect on the capability that we're building. That's indirect. Uh, second thing is culture. Your family has a culture, your country, you and I are in different parts of the world. Uh, we have different cultures. Uh, we may have grown up in some faith group and those were different. Uh, but in a corporation, I talk about in one of my books, I think also the regenerative business, you can end up in an authoritarian culture or a humanist culture where you try and do good for all the people or in a developmental culture. 
and learning that those are different matrices. And just like the movie, you know, the matrix where you could take a red or a blue pill, you would see the world different. Well, it's true, even without the pill, you grow up in a household, in a country, in a region, and you're creating and living in a culture. Uh, and you have in Australia and New Zealand both so much connection to indigenous culture. And it's the influence and intentionally been used to influence the culture in the last, what, 20, 30 years. It's been an escalating effort, acknowledging the land you're on. All that's culture. Now, none of it tells you what to do, but it does inform what you can see. And so working on building a matrix for a nation or a community or a family, culture building is an indirect work. And the third one is consciousness, which is a little harder to talk about, but mostly we're not very aware of our worldview of living systems and learning how to be conscious of the working of living systems is a big deal. Like I said, I think earlier, I coined the word life shit. Life shit is a consciousness invoking idea. I mean, everyone who's listening and you think for a minute, why in the world would I say life should? Where does that come from? And what is it inviting in terms of what it makes us conscious of how affecting our language is on what we can see? We don't in our modern cultures, popular cultures, work on developing our ability to witness ourselves and our observe ourselves and where we are in terms of the quality of mental energy or mindset we put in, pick any of those words. People think that we're weird if we talk about consciousness at work, but I say to them, well, me working consciousness at work for 47 years with companies has created an average of 35 to 65% revenue growth every year the first five years. So it's not woo-woo. <laughs> and people who learn to do this and learn to build, and it's not so much meditation, although that's fine, but doing it once a day and enough has got to be a way you were in the business. So I introduce frameworks where people can stop and reflect and say, where are we? What's that doing to what we're seeing? What's it limiting? What's it blinding us to? If you can learn to see your own thinking and then not borrow other people's, like I say in my book, don't borrow my ideas. Test them. Find your own way. Really examine them. Because if you adopt my ideas, you're an unconscious, mechanical idiot, right? Uh, for one thing, I make mistakes all the time. I figure that out usually a few years afterwards. But it's important not to think hearing other people's ideas is right because that's unconscious adoption. So that's three of the core ideas that I think are maybe grounded enough from that little story. Uh, and by the way, you can do this with your children. You start early having them set an aim, something they want to be able to do or be good at or uh, work out with friends or school. And instead of you evaluating, you sit and ask them, well, how did, did you choose the right aim? How are you feeling about that? Uh, how'd you do on it? Did the things you picked to work on it turn out right? I started this with my children when they were about five 
to six. My daughter a little earlier, my son a little later. Um, he was the first one. That process made them mindful of the effects of their choice and their actions. And I heard once said, see here what you did? Don't do that again. That's direct. So hopefully that catches people up with us. Yeah, yeah, no, I think so. I mean, there are many frameworks, right? You know, it's, it's kind of layers of frameworks, the the whole yeah. journey. And but this, this is, is absolutely the operative one. Just one thing on the consciousness element. You know, I started meditating like, avidly to the point of potentially excessively about maybe 10 years ago consistently. I was kind of introduced to the practice by one of my martial arts instructors at uni and just didn't really sit with me. I was too active, too busy, too constantly yeah. on as a young man. And then I kind of came back, you know, as an intentional reflective practice. And I stuck with it for years and years. And there was definitely gain in there. And then I stopped. And, and again, when, when you are sort of drawn to not do something, I think there's equal significance to when you're drawn to do something, right? Especially if it's something that you've found some benefit from. And then coming into, you know, your work and, you know, some sort of awareness raising, you know, work in, in other sources as well. I, I actually came to realize that what I'd started doing was almost a sort of a waking meditation, just that yeah. sort of paying much more attention and self-witnessing still in a very conscious level and definitely not, you know, sort of sufficiently. And it's a constant practice, but like the need to stop and sort of physically and mentally separate myself from the world and what was going on around me and go and sit in a very sort of silent, you know, sort of monastic artificial space. Cause you know, I'm having to sort of design that space. I, I found that to be less helpful than being in the world and being engaged with the reality around me in a more mindful way to use the word mindful, you know, sort of in place of consciousness for a moment. Um, and it, yeah, it's it, it exactly as you say. We just don't have the awareness, I think, for the most part. I'm just rather than saying we. I'm just going to say me. I had not had the awareness of the benefit of being in a witnessing mode yeah. in myself for uh, yeah the vast majority of my 42 years at this point in time. This hasn't been so there if you look at the many different schools there are of consciousness and there are many even within buddhism but particularly mahayana and thai buddhism there's something called walking meditation right so it's about single point focus of experiencing life and the Thai Buddhists do this a lot and walk for miles and miles and miles. My son went and hung out with them for a couple of years and said it was amazing because he wasn't very good sitting still either. In um, what would I call it, I guess, Islamic meditation and prayer, there is a, a practice of reciting sacred scriptures out of the Quran. Uh, and I use one that is sacred prayers across all of them for meditation. And I don't do it every day, but most days. And what you do is you say it in a way that's so slow. You say one syllable in your mind. You don't say it out loud. Uh, like if you used to do St. Francis of Assisi, you take that, you know, that first phrase, you take a syllable in time and take a breath in between them. And you observe your breath in and out. And then 
there's the whirling dervishes, which do dancing meditation. Uh, all of those give you practice, but if you don't carry it into a living meditation, I call it, or working meditation, where you're in a place. I, I watch people all the time who tell me they meditate twice a day, 30 minutes twice a day, and yet they're so judgmental, it drives me crazy. And I thought, wait a minute, in meditation to let go of our attachments, right? And so I don't think it's so much the practices, it's the people. And then the Western world, which are Western influences, which you and I both live under, well, there's a lot of Christian ideas in it where you don't work on yourself. Meditation is working on yourself. Uh, and if we don't see, uh, it's called karma yoga. I was trying to think of the name of it in India, where you use life to meditate on. So if you're in a, and you lose a friend, which we both just did, you meditate on what is it, my attachments about death. And if you do that, you watch you, watch how you talk about it, where you go, what you do. That's a living meditation because that's what's in front of you. Or if it's a customer and you're finding yourself affronted by a, a customer and you, you think, well, the customer is always right, you watch all this in your head, that process will build more uh, if, if you're really intentional about it and it's been time regularly, it'll build more force in you to be in the world in a way that you radiate consciousness. Whereas if you only you think the morning sitting or evening or you have a sangha and you, you know, sit, I think it's a slower way, a slow way, where if you do it in life in every moment and you set aims, you use them like mantras which is what I encourage all of you to do, and to do it on real things, your children, your customers, your business, your volunteer work, and you see you and the mess you kept going on in your own head, and then where they sit, I think it's a more powerful meditation process. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And, and it's also, frankly, again, you know, it, it, it's maintaining the connection to our living system. You know, the... Yeah tragedy i think of the westernizing i don't know i'm just going to say appropriation of so many you know, eastern techniques is that right. it, they, they get reduced down to composite components and it's like oh great you're a bit stressed great go over there and meditate for 10 minutes right <laughs> and i'm and that can help i mean i do uh, as I get older, I have more frailties and things I deal with. And sometimes I can get me in a, a tizzy over it. I guess I go sit and breathe for a while or start recite uh, the one syllable at a time, St. Francis of Assisi's Prayer or some other one. And so it's very, very good for many things. I wouldn't say to people don't do it. But I love, and uh, Gurdjieff calls it the fourth way meditation, I think, uh, who another you know, Armenian philosopher. But there are many paths. And the key is, uh, by the way, all this is indirect work we're talking about. We're working on us to build our capacity for consciousness, one of my three uh, ideas about indirect work. And it will affect us and affect our ability to be effective in the world. Yeah. 
So with the time that we have remaining, which is not infinite, of course, um, it is the hardest one. And therefore, that's what I'm actually most drawn to spend our time sort of exploring. Like, what do we do with consciousness? Right. Like, I mean, I, we, we could spend days and days talking about each of these, you know, sort of three in this tribe. But, you know, I, I think certainly for me, that's the one which has required the most energy and has produced the most mm. shifting. Um, so that's where I would I would choose to spend our time exploring how do we how do we do this work in in consciousness based on the approaches you've laid out in indirect work? Well, most traditions have a form that looks something like this. You set an aim, and an aim is not a goal. A goal is out there, I'm going to achieve something, right? An aim is me in a state of being I want to be in. And so I'm getting ready to go into a meeting or uh, an evening uh, with my kids, and I set an aim, and I say, uh and there are a variety of ways to get to one. It's literally creating a mantra which you would might have been given to sit when you were taught to meditate. But it's, it's taking one that you know is about growing and developing you. Uh, and my earliest one, just so people get an idea, was a judge not. And partly, I mean, I grew up in a Christian world, but I took the idea of having uh, a non-judgmental engagement because I grew up in a, with a father who was ridiculously judgmental in very harmful ways to everything he touched. And I knew I was absorbing it because you absorb the matrix you're in, right? And so I would, when I was going to meet with my own children at our Sunday evening reflection, uh, I would say, judge not. And, uh, and so you need a short, short, short aim. And then as we started, I would often write that name, and they've evolved over time. Well, my children are long gone. They're older than you. Uh, and I would enter the setting, and I would keep that in front of me, and I would watch when I hear my voice and my judgments creeping in. And then sometimes I could just breathe in, uh, judge not, or silently, and breathe it in, and they would... <laughs> It would let go. I always afterwards looked and said, where did that come from? What was I thinking before? I do a lot of what I call sourcing mind. Where's my mind sourcing this garbage? Uh, you know, and why is it doing that? Because I find seeing it dissolves it. It's, oh, yeah, okay. It's that my father said over and over or whatever I say. So the first step is set aims. The second step is go engage in the real world, not in a corner, not in a meditation studio. Uh, but I have an aim specifically for the event I'm going to be in. And I watch me. And then afterwards, uh, you, and with my children and everybody I work with, I say, how did everyone do on their aim? Would anyone be, would you be willing to reflect? And when we're in company, the aims are often about what we want to do to change how we're relating to our markets or, and not goals again, not accomplishments, but why am I so worried every time I talk to this customer or I go into innovation design and, uh, there's something about me that's whatever I am that I would like to be different. So if you get groups relating to a name the set and 
going and acting and the reflecting afterwards, if you did nothing else in life but that, you would change your consciousness. But I'll add one step to it, which is you want to get so it's a long thought through time. And so once you have a an aim of some kind, you can ask, where was I on that aim last time? And how have I moved and done better or gotten closer or that wasn't the right name. I need to evolve it a little or I've grown. And so you're always looking at you in motion. No right and wrong. Not where did I go wrong? Uh, not where did I mess up? Not where did I do bad? Or you don't ever ask that question. It's always the movement of there to now. And then asking what I want to do next time. And then I come back in. All right, that's where I was last time. How have I moved? in my own thinking. And I may take that aim out into other places because the common denominator is always me. And I carry my own attachments and energy drains with me. So if I'm gonna work on developing me, I use my life and I use it with those kind of instruments. So a provocation to you, dear listener, as I've received Carol's work and what Carol's just described there, how familiar is that? Right? How relatable is that? How how different is that to what you might be doing already? Because when I first came into contact with Carol's work, I could barely comprehend what has just been said <laughs> as being relatable. Um, but what I've discovered is that being prepared to, you know, with this work to, to receive it as as you do um remarkably quickly it, it kind of starts to become yeah. more familiar and yeah you know, especially with your work but in you know sort of living systems and you know sort of indigenous wisdom yeah the more i explore the more i receive the more it feels like rediscovery it you know it becomes remembering and don't need to sort of get into the complexities of you know sort of intergenerational memory and you know sort of all this kind of stuff but a lot of what you're inviting people to practice is not new so much as ancient and you say this frequently and you kind of declare this in all your work you know right it's all all my indigenous understanding came through my own grandfather uh, I never lived in a, uh, a tribal setting or a reservation or a First Nation, whatever you call it in your country. Uh, but I had an amazing grandfather who was raised uh, in his youth on an Oklahoma reservation where the indigenous people were driven, right, so, uh, years ago. And he, his uh, great, uh, through his second great grandfather, had lived there. And his father, after he was. 15, 16 years old, left the reservation. And he took with him all of that. So, and he spent so much time. And in this book, I one of the greatest things he gave me, which was seven first principles of regeneration, which was a framework to be able to keep myself conscious. They're my words now. They, you know, over the years I evolved it. But uh, yeah, so that's my source. I do a lot with quantum uh, theory, quantum science, uh, like I with Einstein and David Bohm, and even Thomas Kuhn, who was uh, not a scientist, but a philosopher in history of science. And then um, lineage teachers, I spent time 
in a variety of different kinds of Buddhism. I settled more with Mahayana, Tibetan Buddhism, and some work with uh, a version of lineage teachings with uh, Sri Aurobindo and the mother, uh, which uh, again had this idea you go work in the world, don't sit only in meditation. So I do, I want to agree with you that when you first meet this work and you listen to me, some people just run away as fast as they can. And the reason is that we have a different language. And when we don't hear language we're familiar with, either we judge ourselves or we judge the person who's talking and say, ah, and so we don't stay long enough. Uh, I find people have to be searching. They have to have a curiosity or they find something that you and I are talking about. They go, oh, that's a new name for something I didn't have a word for. Or that's a framework that makes sense to me if I look at my own life. And I find that even in companies, it takes about six months. And that's a kind of shuffling, brain shuffle, right? Uh, acquiring some new language for things we either didn't have a name for, or didn't know how to talk about, or we were using very outdated language that kept our mind in a, a place. So I would tell people they have to join me for a year. I make them pay for a year, no refunds, right? And the reason is, I mean, it's not that I'm, I don't charge enough money to be any rich off of, but I know, like you, that after you hang out, I get you in a fishbowl for a while, and you, I can see what you're doing, and I can offer you my reflection on what you're doing. Something opens, and then it escalates. If I look at how I've changed since I first found uh, my way in the world, probably starting with Kuhn and a few others along the way, I'm astounded at how much more I can see and make sense and how much less judgment. And I mean, all the things I want to work on, if you stay with it, but you have to stay in a community that's working developmentally. You can't go off and, and people, I don't understand that they do it. They send me notes all the time and say, thank you for your books. I'm following everything in the letter. I thought, what are you following? And there's almost nothing in there that's to the letter. And I try and do that. I write in a way you can't copy anything because first, I never do anything the same way twice. But if what you do is join a development community, which you've been in directly with me and indirectly with other folks who are in it, profound things happen. And you have new languages and new ways of seeing the world. So we'd love to have some friends, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I can't speak more clearly than to say everything you've just said, I have received, right? You know, like from the, from the first moment I reached out to you and then you said, well, you know, this is, this is kind of the way, like come into one of these communities and it's going to be really confronting and confounding yeah. and frustrating. And that is everyone's experience. And yeah. you've just got to kind of be okay with that. And then, but it's, let me say one thing though. Yeah, go on, go on. It's very important we don't tell anybody to adopt what we do. We have no dogma. No. Uh, so it's a culture, but not in the sense that we want people coming and giving up all their stuff. Anybody who tells me they're changing what I think, I said, don't do that. 
Don't don't adopt it. You want to free your mind of all the garbage that's in it and get a way to work on it for yourself. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is it. It is it is relearning. It is value adding. You know, it is um, you know recreation as much as anything else. And it, it, it's so different to the way that we receive any other, you know, kind of thing that we believe to be value adding. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm really right. I'm, I'm caught in my own words, in my own language, because I don't want to use the word education because it's not what it is, right? right? Like, um, but, but just as a comparison, right? This is not a journey that is in any way relatable to what most people that are listening to this will have done at school or at university or right. in a course, you know, I'm going to sign up to this thing for a year. I'm going to call that right. a course. Cause that's what I know. Right. You know, and, and it is a completely different way of being. And, and, and I it, have, um, I have people who've been in my communities for 43 years. One of them is the chair she didn't even have a college degree when she started. Now she has PhD, the chair of Stanford University's Management Science and Engineering, which means all where all that amazing stuff comes out, Google and other things. And she stayed with it because she said you have to stay in community. And I never give the same material twice. Never the same. There's no course. It's my rule is I have to invent for who's in front of me today and where they are and where they're going. So uh, I also have uh, a Harvard professor, an MIT professor, just for one world of people. So it is a way of being with others and everything not only is new, so you can keep learning and growing, but it's also um, based on, let me describe to you book seven, because it's really important when you said, uh, Book seven is a confrontation of our epistemology. And epistemology means how we learn. Like you said, it's not a course. It's not quite educational. Well, what is it? It's indirect for one thing. Most epistemology today is direct and it's knowledge transfer. You go to school, you get content, you get an expert, you may get a school of uh, for your career, and then you're kind of done. And you know, life could get boring, but the knowledge transfer is based on only a few people think, and I'm not even sure they do. They do a form of science, which is fragmenting, and come up with the bottom part they have to divide into a university with 47 degrees uh, rather than life. A lot of that was really fostered 100 years ago and with the founding of behaviorism and where behaviorism said nobody can think for themselves. Uh, you want only experts. And it was created by the School of Psychology and called Behavioral Psychology. And in order for them to have a place in the new industrial age, they said, we know how people think. We can tell you what's wrong with you. We can do an IQ test for you. We can set up rewards and recognition programs for you. And I got subjected to some of those. So I'm writing it from inside the experience, too. Uh, the new epistemology or the one that is indirect and most powerful really is self-determined thinking. I learn how to examine my own thinking. I mean, I uh, 
Socrates said an unexamined life is not worth living. Well, an unexamined anything is not worth adopting. And so the book number seven is talking about if we want the world to work, including society, uh, equity, justice, uh, life sheds that are healthy, human beings where everyone has opportunity, we have to change the epistemology. Because the language we're knowledge transfer, we have a few experts. We don't know what they're saying is useful or not, because uh, we don't know how to examine it. So we need to radically re-examine, and that's what our school, the school I steward, is based on. We uh, imagining, re-enlivening, re-educating um, us about how to learn. And that was kind of the fun of indirect work, putting in those intermezzo was a way to do a different epistemology. Stop, don't read the next chapter. Wait, don't go anywhere. Look and see, what did you agree with? Well, if you agreed with it, you didn't do the work. You're being lazy. You're writing, I bet you got notes there, don't you? Wrote down what I said. You underlined it in the book, right? That's a different epistemology. And there was no test, no expert. I don't know any more than anybody else. I'm still trying to figure it out. So if you come join our way of learning, you're in that kind of epistemology, the self-examining, self-determining, making sense out of the world anew every day. And that, I think, is the most perfect invitation for us to leave our conversation today. Uh, okay. I will put some notes and some links for people to go click on uh, to come and explore this invitation uh, that Carol has just extended. So we are right on the time that we have agreed. So we will right. Thank leave you. it right there. Thank you. So as I said at the end of season five, a little bit of a shift uh, if you're a regular listener uh, in my intention for what I will contribute to the close of each of these conversations. So rather than a you know, sort of analytical reflection on the conversation, I'm going to do this. I am going to suggest maybe what you might want to do now. Um, and I am going to reflect on my experience in the conversation and the affect that the conversation is still having. They're all still alive in me. So suggestion, if you have not done so already, please now read indirect work and receive the work as Carol outlines in the book and we have just discussed. And then if you have not done so already, dive in deeper. There is so much that she has created. All the other books, articles, which are mainly on Medium, as well as on her website, and a lot of podcast content. So the links to those platforms, as well as to her seed communities, are below. So scroll down. Uh, begin with indirect work if you have not already started engaging with Carol's work, and then keep going. That would be the first suggestion and then one prompt and really sort of reiterating uh, and expanding and uh, specifically providing one prompt for you to consider which is to what will you devote long thought maybe something that carol and i have just discussed 
maybe something that is completely unrelated, entangled in some way, most probably, but something that you were holding that became poignant as you were being with the conversation that we've just created for you. Or maybe there's something new now which is emerging that requires and calls for long thought, to use Carol's term. And finally, my reflection in this in this episode. Well, as as you could tell, uh, and we sort of alluded to, like this is one of many conversations that I've been immensely fortunate and grateful to Carol to have been in with her. Um, the majority in the developmental communities uh, that she has has created and and, and you know, convened for many many years. Uh, my experience um, in her communities uh, is into multiple years at this point in time, in early 2023 and continuing. And this particular experience was one of unbridled joy. And as the recipient of one of the elements of another of Carol's frameworks, and that element is of external considering, which is essentially love. Right, that in this dialogue, in this conversation with Carol, I feel, because it continues, loved. And that is beautiful. And something which I am incredibly grateful to her for, and is one of her true gifts. To create this feeling as she is radically disrupting you. <laughs> it's... Yeah, it's been unraveling at times, as I have um, spoken to in the article and the video re reflection that accompanies this. So that 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 is my concise description of my experience of co-creating this conversation with Carol. Uh, and I would love to hear about yours. So I will leave it there. The invitation, as always, is to get in touch, reach out, engage, come show up at one of the events that you know, is available and I would love to hear what your experience of this conversation and the rest that are coming have been. As always, looking forward to being with you again very, very soon. Be well, lead well, keep on co-creating our better futures and better worlds. To close this conversation, an expression of gratitude. Firstly, a grateful acknowledgement to the First Peoples of all lands, waters and skies upon which this conversation has been created. The conversation was hosted on Darawal country, audio edited on Gadigal country and produced on Boonwarrung country, all in Australia. And we gratefully acknowledge the contributions that continue from Elders past present and emerging, to generating the fields of wisdom and potential that can sustain our better futures. I gratefully acknowledge the contributions from Brendan Ward as executive producer, original composer and track arranger, to Cooper and Pat from Radio Hub, for audio editing and in-studio tech support to Bonnie 
from Kalata for original artwork and to Sybil at Atomic Tangerine for marketing guidance and to Norpeda and Nicole at Knock Knock for digital hosting and above all else to you for your time, attention and advocacy. Thank you all. Better leaders, better world.